1: Podcast fifteen. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain I just wish every time we talk about it and we say it's a big deal and, oh, my gosh, this is so awful and disgusting and traumatic that we also say, and every day across the country, people who aren't running for president are doing phenomenal, amazing work in their communities, in their lives, in their institutions that cannot be undone no matter what the result in November is.
0: This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We're also going to talk about Joe Biden's appearance on Morning Joe on Friday and our corona fatigue and just the shifting expectations that we have about where we are in this process. We'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. Before we jump in, Barry Kaufman, longtime listener, someone that we've gotten to meet at a live event, has come on board as one of our executive producers. We are so grateful, Barry, that you have come on board in that capacity and hope that all of you are enjoying our Patreon content. We realize today that we have something like 400 ish nightly nuances, and that Patreon has a new feature making them easily searchable. So, we would love for you to join us there at any level of support. It makes a huge difference for the show. And thank you so much, Barry, and all of our executive producers and patrons. We are now
1: several days into May, which means in many parts of the country, we are several days into the easing of social distancing and quarantining restrictions. Unfortunately, truly unfortunately, a lot of these restrictions are breaking down upon partisan divisions. So you're seeing more conservative areas of the country beginning to open back up. You're even seeing this division in the Congress with the United States Senate coming back, despite their aged population. And the House of Representatives deciding to delay further coming back to Washington, D.C. because of the risk of coronavirus. You know, it seems to me like what we're encountering is that when we all kept saying flatten the curve, flatten the curve, we got to flatten the curve as if it was very urgent, which it was, that urgency translated into because we have to do it quickly, it will be over quickly, I think in a lot of people's minds. And so the reality is we have flattened the curve, but we haven't come to the end of the curve and when you when you squish it down and you flatten it as you do when you flatten like i don't know a ball of play-doh which a lot of us are doing daily in our lives now it spreads it out and i feel like america is coming to the realization of oh we tackled the urgent need we don't have spikes but what we do have is a slow burn and so our daily new cases and our daily death toll is not necessarily lowering it's not spiking but it's not lowering and we're looking at this reality that we have a long road ahead of us and instead of saying oh man we have a lot of this ahead of us how can we deal with it it's like forget it like I can't I cannot possibly do this any longer and listen I'm gonna be real honest I have a little bit of that instinct in myself like there's this feeling of like We're really going to get shut down in the fall with flu season. So, like, run while you can in the sunshine. (laughs) But I I think that that, the urgency of flattening the curve kind of hid that flattening the curve means extending the length of the spread.
0: I'm not sure, despite the best efforts of many public health officials, that the vast majority of us understood what flattening the curve really meant. Mm -hmm. I think that we had a sense of if we stay inside, the virus will go away. Yep, yep. Instead yep, of yep. if we are slower to get the virus, our healthcare system will be able to take care of us when we have it. Mm-hmm. Fewer of us will get it. Fewer cases will be deadly. And honestly, it's no wonder. Most everything in American culture and in American business happens in sprints, not marathons. Mm -hmm. We look Mm -hmm. at economic performance quarterly. And so three months feels like a really long time to us. We day trade on the stock market. We look at our podcast downloads over 60 days right? Mm -hmm. Everything Mm -hmm. that we do happens in these really short bursts of time. And I just have been realizing that psychologically, we are not wired for anything long term. And nothing in our experience has asked us to practice something that could stretch out as long as a war that really impacted the entire country's psyche instead of a portion of the country dramatically and everybody else only when we choose to think about it would last, you know, a virus where there isn't an enemy and there isn't a finite ending period. I think that's what it is. Like we thought, okay, we flattened the curve and we wrote all these articles about reopening and our public officials talk about reopening as though there's going to be like a ribbon cutting and we're going to be off to the races again exactly as we were before this. it's just making me realize, like, on so many levels, we can talk about how our country was unprepared. We were deeply psychologically unprepared for what this would require of us.
1: I read the piece in The Washington Post both about um, the lack of federal funds for hospital preparedness. There was a a peak in interest after 9-11 and then sort of faded when the bill came due. I also was thinking, like, put a pin in that. On a side note, I've been really thinking about, I wonder if history will require a dramatic rewriting of the legacy of George W. Bush because of his role in pandemic preparedness and social distancing in light of some of his other decisions that I think cost lots of lives and I don't agree with. There's a lot of me thinking, like, well, we have we need to add this to the ledger anyway. Back to my previous point. And so they faded with 9-11. And I keep thinking, I keep struggling with, why why are the same people who I feel like are so gung-ho in the face of the heartbreaking loss of 9-11, which is, you know, 3,000 plus lives, are asking us to basically blow off 50,000 lives. And, you know, I think it's hard. There's a really interesting article in Slate about It's not like the 1918 pandemic, which where all these lives were lost, plays a huge part in our national history, because though that type of life's lost is we don't have good language about it. We don't have a good way to think about that history because it's not for some grand achievement, some grand historical goal in the way you can you can um, sort of write the narrative around war. And, you know, because I kind of got on my high horse about like, that's not really true. We can do long term. We have poured lots and lots of money into our military, like over very long periods of time. We're all about big, grand, long term spending when it's like the Space Force or, you know, the the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And I, I don't know why the psychology of that feel so different except for it is that it fits that neat there is a bad guy there is an end date in theory although that's no longer really true of wars and i think we just struggle in the absence of that and i think the the biggest difference is when we're facing what you're talking about when we're facing the psychology of short-term long-term payoffs for such an amorphous threat then you have to have leadership. You have to have a leader that everyone trusts saying, trust me, that long-term will be worth it. You have to trust me. You have to see, I can see it. I can see the vision. I can see the long-term payoff. Can you trust me that I will get us there? And, you know, I think that we have really great local leaders But for better or for worse, I think most people's state identity is not stronger than their partisan identity. And so it would but I do think a lot of people's American identity is stronger than their partisan identity when push comes to shove. And I think if we'd had that type of leadership at the national level saying lean into your American identity, we are Americans. We are going to get through this together. I can see where we're going. You have to trust me. It's going to be hard. It's going to require sacrifice. But let me keep lighting the way. Let me keep showing you what is possible. And I just, you know, that type of trust is so difficult. It would be hard with anybody, but it feels almost impossible with Donald Trump. You know, at any moment where he's giving that level of trust, he just wastes it. Like he just, <laughs> he just uh, pours it directly on the ground.
0: I agree with what you said about Donald Trump. And at the same time, there's a part of me that sort of resists thinking about him as a part of this conversation because it takes me right back into the mode of conflict. And it makes me think about how we've had a number of conversations. You know, when we started the podcast, I think one of the things we really learned early on when we were talking about kind of the more conservative view of healthcare and the more liberal view and the more conservative view of climate change, the more liberal view, we identified really early on this realization that you and I were able to find more agreement in our discussions because I would argue about the conservative solution to a problem, but I would not deny the problem.
1: Mm.
0: Our mode of dealing with adversity without conflict has been to introduce conflict So it's not like, oh, my gosh, climate change is this fundamental threat to humanity and our planet. How can we work on it together? It's one side saying climate change is a fundamental threat to humanity and the planet and the other side saying, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. Or talking about a particular solution and one side saying, well, you are too greedy to make any sacrifice for the planet, and the other side saying, you are too fearful to care about the economic consequences on us now of doing something. You know, we just keep introducing conflict. And that's kind of what's happening around COVID-19 that's so depressing to me. We've introduced conflict when there shouldn't be any, because we, I think, don't know how to grasp something that doesn't have that natural dimension of Enemy. Even our governor, who I I like so much and I think has done a really good job, often talks about defeating this enemy. And every time he says it, I'm like cringing on the inside because that's not really what this is. And I do think it would help us to take a beat and recognize that's not what this is. And so our normal mode of responding has to be different.
1: You know, I don't claim to be an expert on the psychology of public health, but I do think that it is. Really, really fundamental to how to motivate people. And, you know, I think public health experts understand this. When we shared the report from American Enterprise Institute, those experts go out of their way to say, like, these cannot be punitive. So when you see New York City videos of police hitting someone Attacking someone because of their social distancing or people even the Tucker Carlson report that got shared that I talked about on Insta stories where somebody in Oklahoma, a father in Oklahoma got arrested for being at a at a park like they go out of their way to be like, don't it cannot be punitive because that works against what we're trying to do, which is really motivate people to to make these choices through some really sort of complex psychological Sticks and carrots. And, you know, I think in the translation to public policy with politicians and local officials and state officials, it becomes this sort of discussion about willpower. And then it becomes what we always do, which is describe all this moral value. And so, I mean, I have friends that are, they feel so upset and depressed and personally affronted when people are not, when they go out to Lowe's and somebody, everybody's not wearing a mask. And I just think like, hey, there's lots like it cannot become I'm a good person that cares and you're a crappy person that doesn't. And I think you see that those big feelings bubbling up, particularly in California with Huntington Beach this week. You know, you have the people who are just furious at the idea that these beaches have been closed. And then you have the people furious that you'd be so selfish that all you cared about is the beach. And, you know, I I think that the breaking it down into willpower and, like, moral responsibility towards our fellow man, even if some of that is true, is not going to get us anywhere. Like, it's not going to get people back on board with social distancing. Like, this is like our, you know, fundamental aha moment for Sarah and the life of pantsy Politics on The Nuance Life when we talked about church clothes. And you're like, I don't disagree with you about anything. I just don't think shaming people is the way to get—shaming <laughs> people is the way to make people change, And it makes me so sad because I like to shame people like it. Self-righteousness is one of my favorite emotions as an Enneagram one, but it just doesn't work. And I think as as we face this slow burn, that's going to continue for months and we are going to have to decide how this is going to work. I mean, I, I keep thinking about and I talked about this with Caitlin Curtis this this weekend on Instagram about her new book, Native and sort of oppression and all this stuff. It comes up for me all the time. And when I think about these things and I think about public policy. And now I just have this really perfect pop culture moment to point to, which is in Mrs. America when they're talking about the housewives. Oh, we don't really hate housewives. And I think Gloria Stein says, yes, we do. And they're like, wait, what? And she's like, you know, the question is, how long do we give people to adapt to change? And I think that's sort of the psychology we're talking about. How much time do we spend motivating people? You know, how heavily do we leave on punitive? Do we care if it becomes something we have to force people to do? Are we prepared to deal with the public resources and consequences of when we do have to force people to do it? Like, it's just, it's a really
0: complex psychological dance. And we're not bringing much creativity to it. And that's what bothers mm-hmm. me. You know, the beaches question, I think, is a good example of what's the creative solution? What's something really fun that could be set up on the beach to help people see the distances they need to stay away from each other? What is the version of, oh, my gosh, look, you get this like you get your own private beach space right now. It's right in here. You know, where where are we uh, bringing to This problem, the kind of innovation that we pride ourselves on as a country, to me, the fact that you can't get the House and Senate back in session shows that we are just in an utter dearth of imagination. The CARES Act shows a complete lack of imagination, right? What can we do about this problem? Send out lots of money. And I do think lots of money needed to be sent out, but we're seeing that we're just recycling ideas and we're bringing the same kind of tools to this problem that we've brought to lots of others. Do I think Congress should be in session in some form as they are spending trillions of dollars? Absolutely. Absolutely, they should. And they should do it safely, and they should do it safely for their staff members and for all the people in DC who have to spring back into action as Congress comes back into session. But if we can't figure that problem out on a bipartisan basis, how can we expect that group of people to do much of anything for the rest of the country? And I believe that they can do it. We just have to get out. I mean, the conflict that we've interposed on this of like Democrats are scaredy cats and Republicans are cowboys. We're just going to be stuck if we keep doing that. It's so
1: discouraging because I I do think you're right. Everybody certainly feels stuck. I think that's even the people that think they're cowboys feel stuck. And, I, I, you know, I in my more grace-filled moments, I think there's a lot of creativity going on at the local level and the state level. And, you know, to a certain extent, the CARES Act exhibits some real creativity because we went from benefits to direct payouts, which is something that, you know, when Andrew Yang brought it up or when you and I talked about universal basic income, like, And it's not that this the CARES Act is universal basic income, but, you know, just check payouts, exhibit some movement. But when I really sit and think that they did that and then went home and thought, we're done. And that the only reason Mitch McConnell wants to come back is to convert judges. I'm trying not to burst into flames. I'm too tired. I'm too tired from homeschooling to burst into flames is the actual truth.
0: Yeah. And I don't really blame anybody for that stuckness, because I do think all of this is pretty deeply embedded in our psyches, I think we just have a problem. I think it exhibits Mm -hmm. problems with the way that we educate ourselves. I think it exhibits problems with the way we talk about what it means to be an adult in this country. I think it exhibits problems with sort of our sense of identity and self-worth. And that is not an individual criticism. Um, That is a societal criticism. It's just like we're learning about, you know, comorbidities in southern states. Kentucky is one of them. We are at high risk in this state, and it can't be because every individual Kentuckian has less willpower than our friends in California. So I don't want to blame anybody for where we are as much as I want to say, can we all name that and step back from it and decide that we want to do something different here and really push ourselves to think more creatively. I loved um, Seth Godin's email. He sends really short daily emails and I always find them valuable. But this one I thought was so good. He talked about the difference between an organization and an organism. Mm. And he said, you know, organizations have decided like this is the answer and we build a whole thing on the idea that this is the answer. And any change within that is really disruptive Because the whole premise is we've got it all figured out and we've laid it out and organized it. And this is how we do it. And an organism is constantly interacting with its environment and shifting as that environment shifts. And I read that and I thought, yeah, like we are a society of too many organizations and too few organisms. And what this Mm -hmm. moment requires of us is to think more like organisms and to be where we are and be willing to adapt to it. And that is going to take a lot of us. But we have it, you know, and we made the iPhone like I know we can do this. (laughs) Um, We're just we're not bringing that kind of spirit to this kind of problem.
1: I still think that such a huge part of that is. We invented the iPhone because they had Steve Jobs' vision and leadership, right? Like, I think you have to have somebody saying, trust me, this is where we're going. And that's what we're missing. We're missing that so desperately. It's not just there's no where we're going. We don't have clear guidance on where we are right now. And I think that's really, really hard to ask people in the middle of stress, you know, before we started recording, I was, I, I kind of had like this oh my gosh, are we all dropping our IQ points? Because there's this great psychological study where they create financial insecurity in the test subjects and then give them an IQ test and their IQ drops. So, like, creating that false sense of financial stress affects your IQ. Well, everybody is experiencing financial stress, even if you feel secure. The, the economic feedback about all the unemployment numbers and the debt and the, all that, it's huge. And so I just think, man, maybe we're all just <laughs> struggling with drops in our IQ because of stress and crisis and all these things. And so in, in the face of that, you really have to have someone or a group or a team or somebody that can point to where we're going. To help bridge the gap between the stress and the crisis and the lack of resources and energy that people feel to, to forward movement, to gain that momentum. And we're just really missing that. And I think you especially feel that with the fatigue and the slow burn and the lack of clear guidance and this is the solution. We're not there yet. This is the guidance, but this is just voluntary. There's no requirements. There's too many requirements. Like, it's just, it's exhausting. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath.
0: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive & June has you covered. We've talked about Olive & June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days, and it is offered in more than forty cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives—that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com/pantsuit for twenty percent off your first system. That's o-l-i-v-e-a-n-d-j-u-n-e.com/p-a-n-t-s-u-i-t for twenty percent off your first Manny system.
1: .com/pansy
0: So do you feel like uh Joseph R Biden is the person to provide that vision as we transition into our next subject? Blessings. Um
1: I think I have some anger about this conversation on a couple levels. Um, I don't appreciate the idea that because I'm a Democrat, I cannot be objective about this. And like every Democrat's just looking to make excuses for Joe Biden, because I don't even really like Joe Biden. He was certainly not my candidate. I will probably not vote for him on my ballot in June. And so that I feel really feel real frustration, even though God save me listening to him on Morning Joe and listening to a lot of people and a lot of people's analysis about the accusation from Tara Reid against him, I am leaning towards believing him, not because I think we shouldn't believe women, not because I don't think that her accusation should have been and should continue to be treated with all the seriousness that those accusations deserve, but because of the pattern of past predators that we've learned about in the me too movement in which it was a established pattern of behavior. Now we've got established pattern of behavior with Joe Biden one that for what it's worth I thought was disqualifying. But you know, I think what I'm what I'm dealing with is struggling with what feels like a red flag to me that there there seems to be no pattern of behavior. Struggling with the idea that when we say believe all women I'm not sure I understand what that means anymore. I thought it meant take seriously the accusations and not assume someone is lying. And I don't, and I think we we can tackle some of this during our Me Too conversation. And I know this is incredibly difficult. I'm not sure we have an answer, and that doesn't mean I don't think we should stop trying. I don't know the difference, or is there a space between Not assuming someone's lying and not assuming someone is telling the complete truth either. So especially as we face a scenario in which there is, you know, someone's liberty is not on the line. When we really aren't deciding if someone goes to jail or if someone doesn't go to jail, if we're talking about someone's career or public persona and there, is there gray area available to us? Now, I understand that that there is a there is a hard decision to make here, obviously, it's not someone's liberty but it is the presidency and i i just find myself getting so defensive when people write us and say well he should be out of the race and i don't i don't know what should means right now because you know it's a democratic process short of him resigning the nomination or declining the nomination of his own free will I don't know what options are available to us because people have voted. And in a democratic institution or even in a party process based on a democratic process, our options are limited. And the the reality is we're gonna have to live in that gray area between both viewing the increasing accounts of corroboration and the lack of a pattern of behavior and know that we don't have a time machine and we can't go back and decide definitively. So there will be gray area for us, short of Joe Biden declining the nomination, which there is no evidence he plans to do. And, you know, the the shoulds are just not really helpful, I think, in that scenario. And... You know, the only thing I think that really matters to me is that I don't think women should be on the line to speak for him, about him, defend this, be saddled with this, whether they're surrogates or him, a vice president for him or otherwise. I'd like this, This, if we can learn anything from this particular Me Too moment, I hope it's that. I hope we can abandon that. Women have to speak for men. But otherwise, I think it's just something we're going to have to sit with and live with and be disappointed and frustrated and even disgusted with. And I, I hate it, and I don't know if there's a better answer.
0: Well, I agree with you on the whole. Um, I think we are in different places in our assessment of whether he's telling the truth about this or not, I am inclined to believe that at least something happened with Tara Reid that is not being disclosed right now by the Biden campaign. And what frustrates me the most in his telling of it, not that there is a good way to handle an interview like the one he did with Mika Brzezinski, and I should say that That interview had not been announced, reported, his statement had not been released when we recorded our last podcast. So there was a timing gap, as so often happens, between our episode coming out and his decision to talk about this. And I'm glad he decided to address it directly. Something that frustrates me in his telling, and I don't want to be too critical because there is not a good way, is that I feel like in every denial, his and other's, of an accusation like this, the conversation sounds like the woman doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. What do you mean? There isn't this acknowledgement. Yeah, we work together. I remember her. I remember these things about her. This is what our relationship was like. You know, Mika asked him, do you remember her? And he really kind of ran past that question straight to the, this did not happen. And I understand that it is an unbelievable moment of stress to be, confronting an allegation like this, especially if you are certain of your innocence. I do wish there were a way to talk about it where the woman's existence doesn't just become, like, it's evaporating, you know? I can well, imagine... Well, do you think
1: he did? He thought it would sound bad to say, I don't remember her? I don't know. Because I, be- I, I believe it's possible he does not remember her. Being a staffer in a Senate office... Yeah. ...and as long as he was, and she was only there for, like, three months, right?
0: Yeah, I mean... I,
1: You could definitely not remember her. And I wonder if the advice was it'll sound worse if you say you don't remember her. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe. I don't know. But I totally I totally I know what you're talking about. And I think you're right.
0: I'm trying so hard not to lean in too much to he did or he didn't because I don't know.
1: Litigating it. I
0: just Mm -hmm. don't know. And and she's doing it for this reason or that. I don't know. Um, And I really want to have grace for her and for him, for the people advising him, for Mika Brzezinski. I want everyone who criticized the way she handled that to take several seats because Mm -hmm. there is no good way to do that either. And for her to be the woman on that show who had to do that makes me mad also. Yeah, And I thought she did a very good job, but... Yeah, but if they'd had Willie do it, they'd been like, why didn't you have a woman do it? Yeah, and I hate that. And I just want out. That's another ride I want off of, you know?
1: That's it. I want out. (laughs) I I want I want out of all of
0: that? Out. So here's how I am analyzing it. Do I think that this is disqualifying for the presidency? Of course I do. Do I think that this should be where we are? Of course not. And at the same time, I'm not the decider of that. Yeah. The only decision that's in front of me is who am I going to vote for in November? And that is a brutal calculus. It is so mm-hmm. insensitive to the spectrum of feelings that people live through when you talk about sexual assault. It is brutal to have this just completely binary, this box or that box choice for every person who's lived through something like this. And I acknowledge that and I never wanna be insensitive to it and it pisses me off too and it's never gonna be okay and it's not normal and it's not where we should be and yet it is where we are. And that is all I know how to grapple with right now. All I know how to grapple with is that these are the two people who are gonna be on my ballot, perhaps just in a okay what am I going to do in that scenario? It sucks. It's infuriating. It's even more infuriating if the actual truth is he did nothing wrong. And this Mm -hmm. is being used as a weapon that is re-traumatizing so many women that is putting people like Mika through the horror of having to do that interview. You know, that is unearthing all of this stuff that we can't seem to take a breath from as a culture because of its prevalence. If this is a lie, it it makes me even madder. You know what I mean? It makes me even angrier if this is not true. And so I don't know what to make of any of it other than to keep thinking about how do I look at my ballot and make a decision if these are my options. They're unacceptable options. Would I rather have Joe Biden without a woman vice president because of this? No. If this is the choice that we face, he is the nominee. He pledged to have a woman vice president. Do I want every woman who would be a great vice president to turn him down because of this? I do not. No. I do do not not want that. that. And so, you know, I, I am just wrestling with being deeply pragmatic as we must be at different points in our democracy and holding space for the fact that this sucks all around for literally everyone and there is no way that any person involved in this can handle it that's going to make all of us feel better
1: and you know what else though on top of that you know we have a chapter in our book i think you're wrong but i'm listening at your local booksellers um about putting politics in its place and i think there's room for that this type of allegation And for what it's worth, the established pattern of behavior that both of us believed were disqualifying. It is true that that is disqualifying, that it is traumatic for survivors of sexual assault, that it is disruptive and nonproductive. And all those things are true. And also it is true that the entirety of the Me Too movement that any, the entirety of any forward moment, movement and growth in our society with regards to sexual assault is not tied up in November's election. That's not it. That's not all of it. That doesn't have to be the basket in which we put every single idea, philosophy, controversy, problem, issue, cultural, societal, gender otherwise, into. It just doesn't have to be that. It just doesn't have to be that because we if we face a ballot in November with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, whether we learn more or less about that accusation does not mean that there is no hope that the Me Too movement is lost, that once we've turned in all our ballots, that nothing good can happen again around this movement, around this topic, around this issue, that it's the Only thing that's going to matter to this topic and this issue until November, like just it doesn't have to hold all that. It just doesn't. It's big. It's important. And paradoxes are true. And the and so at the same time, it is not everything. We confuse the two a lot. We confuse importance for the entirety of it. And I just wish we wouldn't do that right now. I just wish every time we talk about it and we say it's a big deal and, oh, my gosh, what's going on? This is so awful and disgusting and traumatic that we also say, and every day across the country, people who aren't running for president are doing phenomenal, amazing work in their communities, in their lives, in their institutions that cannot be undone no matter what the result in November is.
0: I think that's right. I think it's exceptionally difficult. I think it is made even more so by the circumstances in which we find ourselves right now, where it feels like this is the entirety of that race in this moment. I think there is a pressure on the Democratic nominee to be above all question and reproach as a contrast to President Trump. And that is not what has been decided. In the Democratic primary. And I understand that people have very strong feelings about how the Democratic primary shook out. And that is the result. And and I will say, you know, we just had our first press briefing in the longest time by the new press secretary. And when asked about the, the numerous credible allegations of sexual harassment and assault against the sitting president, she said, well, that was democratically decided. And that's kind of what we're saying about Biden, right? It's been democratically decided that he is the nominee, whether this is true or not. Donald Trump is the president, whether all of those accusations are true or not. And it is both true and it is not OK. It, that is not a satisfying answer. Uh, it's not an acceptable answer. But I think what is so important about what you just said, Sarah, is that it is not the only answer are people continuing to hold positions of power that they ought not hold given the way they have treated other human beings in the course of their lives? Unequivocally, yes. And what we can do about that, in addition to continuing to ask questions and think about it and try to discern what the truth is where we are able to and try to discern, discern what is ethical where we are not able to, is inspire people to run for office that we do believe should hold that power, make sure that we're using the capital that we have within a democratic system to uplift people who will be good stewards of their power. And I truly believe the most important thing we can do is continue to have conversations in our families, businesses, communities, civic organizations, churches about how power is held and wielded and about how we impose accountability for these things. And so, when we are able to have those conversations in person, um, I hope we can do it with a modicum of grace and a whole lot of wisdom as we discuss these allegations against Joe Biden. I have something less important, but something I'm both very angry about I want to talk about.
1: I'm mad about the murder hornet coverage. OK. Have you
0: seen the murder hornets? A ve- just really like a one line introduction to a newsletter that I really like talked about the murder hornets. So I'm less familiar with the murder hornets then perhaps you are. I have
1: seen the murder hornets everywhere which I think is inappropriate. I do not think in western Kentucky I need to see such prolific coverage of a threat to the bee population in upstate Washington. Don't email me. It's not because I don't think the murder hornets will be impactful to the bee population perhaps across the country. I just think right now first of all Do we have to call them murder hornets? And second of all, does the coverage have to be so dang breathless? Seriously, like stop, stop with the
0: murder hornets, please and thank you. Well, before we talk about the Supreme Court, we wanted to bring up a couple of local leaders who I seriously hope have not been talking about the murder hornets I'm going to be so mad if they can't. In that lag time since we got these compliments and just issued that directive. Um, But we'll start with Julie Wise from Hannah. Julie is the director of the King County Board of Elections in Washington State. And Hannah said... I bet she talked about the murder hornets. I'm just saying. (laughs) Hannah said that... When she moved to Washington State from North Carolina 10 years ago and was introduced to voting by mail, she never looked back because it makes so much sense and is so straightforward. And Hannah is very proud of her nearly perfect voting record. She likes being able to take a second and look at her ballot. And she wanted to shout out her local county board of elections, director Julie Wise. She said this is an elected position and Julie is someone who cares deeply about her responsibility and the role to remove barriers to voting for the people she serves. Julie led efforts in King county to push for and make happen prepaid postage on return ballots we used to have to stamp ourselves to mail or you could put a ballot in a drop box for free theirs is the first county in the state to do that which was eventually adopted statewide she's increased the number of ballot drop boxes expanded translated materials and all around is an operations minded person who gets it all done efficiently and hannah is very proud to have twice voted for julie wise from the comfort of her own home We also heard from
1: Monica praising the president of Oberlin University, Carmen Twilley Ambar. She has a son who's a student in Oberlin. They, like many campuses across the United States, closed down with very little notice. It was sad and stressful for the kids and traumatic for the parents as everybody was trying to purchase tickets and get everybody home. And she said that the president, who's new, it's her first year in the job, she also has triplets, which is impressive sent a really, really thoughtful message and she was really impressed with her leadership. So we thought we would share a little bit of uh, President Ambar's message.
0: So it's been really interesting not having students on campus. You know, it's, it's an odd, surreal moment that we're in and it feels uh, strange. And yet I know that we can find our way through this. You know, I talked to a group of students right before you all left. And they came to my office and we were having this exchange about how difficult this was going to be. And at one point we all got emotional. Uh, And these students said to me, well, but President Ambar, this is our home. And so your home is missing you. And I know you're missing us. No matter how challenging this is, it is an extraordinary gift of time.
1: Next up, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court.
0: Talking a lot about the Supreme Court. It's been really fun for me.
1: Well, I do feel like they deserve some praise as a throwback to our previous conversation because they are adapting. They're having the teleconferences and the things that it seemed like they would never, ever, ever do. Do I think they should have been doing this before a pandemic? Yes, I do, but that's okay. So they're they're leaning into the to the unique and creative solutions for sure.
0: And they are also a terribly high-risk population. So I am very Word. glad they aren't taking any chances. Um, with COVID-19. I have been fixated on a comment that Tyler made on Patreon in response to a nightly nuance I did about probably the most widely covered Supreme Court case of the past couple of weeks. In that case, the court decided that when you are tried for a felony criminal offense by jury... The jury verdict must be unanimous to convict you. This was a case where the state of Louisiana, at the time of convicting an individual, had a policy in place that juries could convict by a 10 to 2 vote. And um, Oregon had that law as well. Louisiana has since overturned its law on its own, but the case went forward anyway And the court decided that the jury does have to be unanimous, that that is part of our Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury. But it decided that in an incredibly fractured and complicated way. And Tyler commented on the nightly nuance I did about that case and said, this would be impenetrable without your guidance. And I have really just focused in on that word impenetrable because I think that is true. The Supreme Court cases that I read and share on Patreon are like the one thing in life that makes me exceedingly grateful for my law degree. That's not true. That's an overstatement. I've met so many wonderful people that I wouldn't know without my law degree, but that is the moment where I think, I don't know that I could do this without my law degree and without the training that I have because it is really complicated. And when I think about how much of our lives and how many very, very personal aspects of our lives are dictated by the Supreme Court. It really concerns me that an ordinary person can't pick up one of these decisions and read it and really understand it.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I don't know because I think the the sad reality of our government is legislation impenetrable, administrative decisions oh, loud. Yeah. loud. I mean, I think like just a lot of the our democracy is pretty impenetrable. I think what's so good, though, you know, I love a pattern. I love a theme. It's why I'm leaning into Star Wars day today as we're recording, even though I don't even like Star Wars, is because when you do it the way you did it on Patreon and you like do all the decisions at once, you see patterns and movements inside the court, which are inevitable because they have uh, two new justices and not just because they have two new justices, Tell me if you think I'm wrong in this perception. It seems like everybody like the conservatives are emboldened because there's more of them. And so they're being a little more um, out in the open about their thought processes and what they think needs to change. And the liberal justices are also being a little more assertive. I mean, because I think they feel emboldened because of the the way at least I would if I was them. Uh, the way in which Kavanaugh came on the court and maybe because they I think, well, maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's also that they feel that movement coming from the conservative justices and it feels like Sotomayor in particular is like, cool, but I'm going to go. I'm not going down without a fight. That's what I. that's my very emotional reading of like what she's doing and what's coming from the other side. Am I wrong? Am I just creating some drama where there
0: isn't any? Uh, no, I don't think you're creating drama where there isn't any. I think everybody on the court right now is playing a pretty long game. Mm. And part of that long game, I think, is participating in decisions, sometimes not at all on that liberal conservative dividing line, but trying in the course of finding some compromise as to the outcome of a specific case. To make a much broader point (laughs) so that in the future you can circle back to that broader point. You know, a big theme right now at this court is just what is the impact of precedent? Because for the average law student, you know, the big takeaway is we decide cases the way they've been decided before. That's what you learn. How was it done before? Okay, that's the answer this time. It's really hard to make a law. It's really hard to unmake a law. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And this court is taking a sledgehammer to a whole lot of precedent. And everybody knows that that's a dangerous game and will lead to conflict on the court over marriage equality, over reproductive rights, over lots of things that we thought were settled by these landmark cases that sort of announced a new understanding of law. And people are starting to say the quiet parts out loud about that. And you really saw that in this jury verdict case where um, you had kind of a plurality of judges, four judges, saying, well, this wasn't really precedent that we were overturning, it was kind of precedent, but not really. So don't worry too much about this in that line of cases. And then you had Sotomayor saying this was absolutely precedent and we are absolutely overturning it, but that's because this is exceptionally important. And you have Justice Kagan coming down on the side of Elite, you know, Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts. By saying, we are not, we're willing to have ten to verdicts from juries in felony criminal trials and convict people with that verdict. And we think that's really stupid and wrong, but our prior cases require it. And precedent is that important. I mean, it's a real disarray of ideas because I think everybody is anticipating, where am I going to land when the big one comes? And if we are in that place with the Supreme Court where the big one isn't what's at stake when someone is about to go to prison, yikes, yikes, we have put this court in a pressure cooker. That's my reading of it.
1: I appreciate the out in the open discussion of precedent because they always did that crap. And conservatives are going to say, not unfairly, y'all turned all kinds of precedent over during the Warren Court or created precedent. and.
0: Can you say what you mean by the Warren Court for people who are not Supreme Court observers?
1: Uh, So this was Chief Justice Earl Warren in the 60s, where you got a lot of really big Supreme Court precedent, including uh, Miranda rights and a a lot of criminal justice, but not just criminal justice, a lot of civil rights decisions and big, big shifts, big shifts in the way the court approaches lots of constitutional precedent. And... You know, here's a controversial thing I kind of thought. If what we talk about all the time is the pace of change and how dramatically it's increased in our country in the last several decades, I mean, maybe what we're seeing in the court in this um, discussion of precedent is maybe the pace of change will increase on the court. You know, maybe that's just something we have to face and decide if we like it. Do we like it if it's, Ruby over Roby Wade in the 70s. Um, several decades later, we overturn it. Two decades later, we overturn it. A decade later, we overturn it. Like, I mean, I just think that maybe the Supreme Court is going to have to deal with the increase in the pace of change that every other institution has dealt with. I think that's sort of what they're talking about. I think that the idea that uh, Gorsuch is, or Kavanaugh is going to set this uh, test for precedent, and that's what we're going to stick to the next couple hundred years, is laughable. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't, I can't laugh at the idea that maybe there should be a test to begin with because they've always done it. They just acted like it was a one-off every time. Well, how many one-offs do you get before they're not one-offs anymore? When you're, when you're overturning precedent, and so I just, I don't know. I just think that maybe they're dealing with what everybody else is dealing with, which is the pace of change is increasing, and that's turning the Supreme Court as it is everywhere else
0: yeah and i mean i think it's true the court has always been in a pressure cooker i don't want to overstate what i think this court is going through but i do think the like overt politicization has ratcheted up and maybe that just means that we found more transparency about what's going on in the court you know perhaps that's the answer perhaps this is exactly how it's always been they're just writing it in words that we can understand better now Or we have more of a view into it now than we ever have before. Or maybe we're just paying more attention than we ever have. Or maybe none of it's different. It just feels different to me because those things are true for me. I I continue to largely believe in the court as an institution, even where it falls wildly short of being an institution that is Altruistic, and um, you know, everyone is being impartial on every decision. Of, of course, that's not the case. Fundamentally, do I think the structure of the court is sound? I I do, um, and I do think even in the cases where I just vehemently disagree with the court, and and honestly, the decision where that has happened most for me is the decision about Wisconsin's elections. But mm. even in those cases, you know, I do think. That we have people who are cognizant of their place in the process and history in a way that a, uh, you know, one term representative from a congressional district that's been gerrymandered to all heck is not.
1: That's true. And I think there's
0: something really important about that.
1: I wish that more of them reacted like the chief justice and were humbled by that role instead of empowered.
0: Well, that's a big ask, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. not many people make it to the Supreme Court out of humility. Word. It's like everything else in our government. If you're going to make it to the top, you have a set of characteristics, usually, that got you there. And being exceptionally self-aware and transparent about your own weaknesses (laughs) is usually not at the top of that list.
1: Well, now, I have a theory about this. I think that is very identity driven because I think if you are white and male and you take that path from a sense of offense, it's very different than if you are a woman or a member of a minority group and you take that path as a matter of defense, proving your right to be there worth versus feeling entitled to be there.
0: Totally. Totally. And I think you see that play out in the decisions. And I Mm -hmm. think you especially see it play out in, you know, one of the factors in whether you overturn precedent or not is how much people have relied on that previous precedent. And there is a different sensibility about cases that concern contracts and business rights than cases that concern more personal rights. Mm Mm-hmm. And the way individual justices write about those differing sensibilities, I think you can see a real identity-driven analysis. And I don't think that's wrong. I think we shouldn't criticize the court about that because I think we want human beings. I mean, what bugs me about Clarence Thomas's decisions is that he writes as though law should be practiced by robots, as though there is no room for interpretation, no gray area. Every test should be a bright line test. Every word should be the dictionary definition of the word. And I don't think it should be that way. I think law is intended to be practiced by human beings. I think the cases in front of the Supreme Court are supposed to be very hard cases. I think judges are supposed to look at all the circumstances happening when they decide a case. And I think you can do all of that and still be very faithful to discharging the law as it's been written. It's just really interesting to see the court doing that against such a polarized landscape and having to be aware of that and also be like tired of being hamstrung by it, too. And so you have you have Justice Kavanaugh writing this concurrence in a case about the Second Amendment where the court didn't decide the case. They decided it was moot. And so they they said, we're not going to make a decision on this because the, the ship has sailed. And Justice Kavanaugh said Yeah, I agree. The ship has sailed. Uh, But I also think we ought to take one of these cases where the ship hasn't sailed, because I I think that we have too many laws infringing on the Second Amendment.
1: Yeah, that's definitely the top priority. Clarence Thomas is my least favorite justice, although Alito is really making a play for that position. And I feel like what bothers me about those different sentiments, and I want to be grace-filled like you and say we just need lots of perspectives, but... I cannot deal with the tone of pearl clutching when a business or corporation must adjust or adapt or undo like, oh, I just, how could you ask this business or corporation to follow this unfair law? It's outrageous. And then when it's a criminal justice case, they're like, well, you lost your liberty. That's the way the cookie crumbles. It's tough, though, I feel for you. It's infuriating. And I am painting. I'm not even painting with a brush. I'm painting with, like, a street sweeper. But it just drives me bananas. And I feel like they do it a lot.
0: Well, if you are interested in following the court more, I am breaking down each one of the decisions on Patreon. What is Most exciting, I think, about the court right now is that it's having these like way more transparent arguments than they've ever had over teleconference about some really consequential decisions, including what they're going to do with DACA and what they're going to do with the president and the disclosure of some of his financial information. This newfound transparency around the court is a real gift as it reaches some of the hardest cases that it's going to have to consider this term.
1: Beth, what are you thinking about outside of politics?
0: You know, my husband, we all cope in our own ways with coronavirus. And I think that one of my husband's ways is using this time to complete projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so one project that he decided needed to be undertaken is uh, sprucing up our patio furniture. And my piece of that project was to recover the cushions of our patio furniture Now, Chad will point out quickly that he offered to learn how to do this part as well. But you know, it was enough for me to learn how to use a sewing machine. And so I did that. And I spent most of the weekend either reading Supreme Court cases or sewing, which was a strange space to be in. And here's what I really learned from it like, recovering these cushions is the kind of project that someone who sews would say, oh my God, it's so easy. It's so simple. Just chick, 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 and you know, you're done. And that is because we do not value our own skills appropriately. was <laughs> nothing easy about this, <laughs> nothing. And if you are a person who sews, like value your skill in sewing. Don't be telling other people stuff like this is easy because it is not easy. It is very complicated. It's great. I'm glad that I learned how to do it. It is a skill that I certainly need to practice more to say that I have it at all. It just made me feel like there are so many things where we would tell people, well, that's really simple. And there is nothing simple about it. We are just not valuing the, the skill set that we have built in support of that, that task.
1: I'm on record. Please don't at me. I think sewing is a scam because sewing is just math and ironing, neither of which I enjoy. And I told you this when you sent me the pictures of 11 cushions. I was like, Mm-mm. that's a lot of math. That's a lot of ironing. I made a quilt for Nicholas when I was in college. And about halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, this is so much irony and so much math. And I want to cry. It's like geometry It's hard. It's really hard. There's Some advanced math skills going on in
0: sewing. This is what I'm saying. And I feel like people would say, well, this this is easy because it is just a square. And yes, it is. No, But the whole thing is still very hard. No, it's
1: very hard. Very, very, very hard. That's why I like knitting. Knitting is counting, but not math. See the difference? You just pick up and you start counting. Now, I did cry the first time I taught myself to knit (laughs) via a YouTube video because it's a hard thing to get the first time. But like once you get it, it's just counting, which I prefer to math.
0: I don't want to dissuade anyone from sewing because I am very proud that I made these cushions and I do intend to keep sewing because I don't ever want to have to learn how to use the machine again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just saying, sewers, be proud of your skill set. Tell people, this is hard. I will teach you to do it and you should learn. It's wonderful, but it's hard. What are you thinking about outside of politics?
1: Um, I'm just trying to pivot from the end of school officially to the beginning of summer. I want to keep up our routine because I think it is helpful. But it's just so difficult because the schoolwork was providing a certain amount of structure. So I have to figure out what's going to. Um be in place of that structure and how to dial it down without feeling like all I'm doing is dialing up the video gaming and the television watching. It's just hard. It's just the the a different kind of hard during this this COVID season. I did finish a lot of books this weekend, which made me feel like more more like myself. Um I finished The Big Thirst, our water book from the Extra Credit Book Club. Really loved it, thought it was so Interesting and like got me thinking about. I feel like I have like I've seen the Matrix when it comes to water, and I also finished my friend Lindsay Pollock's book, The Remix, which is about cross generational workplaces, and it really helped me. And I am very dedicated to not generation shaming. It's very hard, but I'm I'm committed to trying. Um, so that made me feel a little bit more like myself. Uh, it's nice to finish some books and get some other input, but it's just hard. We're back to Monday. We're back to figuring out. How to get a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old um, engaged and entertained. is It's it's a Sisyphean task.
0: Yes, it is. I don't know if I'm ready to talk about the summer yet.
1: <laughs> it's so true. I just, you know, this is what I did in college. It's true then and it's true now. Even more true than it was in college. I remember every time I would like, I remember in particular one political philosophy paper that was like, it was about Aristotle. It was due like the week. The like Monday after spring break or something, and I got back on that like Saturday, maybe a Sunday, let's be honest. And I remember being on the phone with my husband and being like, I cannot do this. I cannot write this paper. Or like a test being just feeling like I cannot. I just cannot. And I would always tell myself, you will blink and this will be over. You will blink and it will be another semester. Like I already had a sense in college of like how time was going so quickly That's even more true with kids. I know the days are long, but the years are incredibly short. I have a 10-year-old. That's impossible. And so I'm like, you will blink, and Griffin will be graduating from high school. You know that to be true. He was a newborn three and a half minutes ago. Like, I just have to keep reminding myself, like, you will blink, and this will be over. Just just stay focused on enjoying as much as you can enjoy, because it really does. Even, I think, I mean, I, I just wrote in my little... Quarantine journal that the historians told me to start day 50. That seems impossible that I've been doing this, that we've been doing this for 50 days. It went really fast in a lot of ways. So I just that's what I have to keep telling myself.
0: We have gotten such good submissions for the episode we're putting together on how all of this is affecting kids. We have not heard enough teen voices. So if Mm. you are a teenager or a young adult, or are the parent of one who might be willing to share, we really don't want to miss your perspective and would love for you to send your voice memo just about how all this is going for you, just a minute or two to hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. We know that you're out there and would really love to be able to share your voice with our audience. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll be back here with you on Friday on The Nuanced Life tomorrow. Keep it nuanced, y'all.
1: Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Productions. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante
0: Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Martha Brunitsky. Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Jared Menson, Allison Luzader, and Barry Kaufman. To support Pantsuit
1: Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
0: You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics. Politics.